Hello everyone, my name is Drew Ray and you're listening to DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. This is the last episode for the first year of DisasterCast. For this episode, we return to the topic of airline safety. Way back on episode 3 we talked about the rationale for the rules about switching off personal electronic devices. I thought it would be fun and a little bit instructive to go through some of the other things that make up the pre-flight safety briefings. The content of pre-flight briefings is closely regulated, mainly through guidance that stems from the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, and then is slightly tailored by the individual national regulators. I can't get hold of the exact ICAO guidance, so this episode is based on the USA Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, Advisory Circular 121. You'll notice very little variation between countries, though. The guidance starts off by saying that passengers have a much better chance of survival in an accident if they are alert and knowledgeable. This isn't evidence-based, but it's a reasonable supposition. There's no real evidence, though, showing whether passenger safety briefings cause passengers to behave any differently. And there is a fair bit of evidence that passengers in real emergencies ignore a lot of the instructions. Still, the people writing the guidance aren't naive. The very first instruction recognises that it's really hard to get passengers to focus on the briefing, and tells airlines to make the briefing as interesting and attractive as possible. That's right, Southwest Airlines and Air New Zealand aren't just being quirky and friendly, they're just complying with the guidance to the letter. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, here's a sample of a few briefings trying to be interesting and attractive. Kia ora, and welcome aboard this Air New Zealand flight. Before we take off, we'd like to run you through a few in-flight safety exercises. The only way is up. Hi, everybody. In the next three minutes, we're going to work hard, work out, and get you fit to fly. Let's go! First, let's stretch it out and lose that baggage. Stretch it up to the overhead locker or slide it under the seat in front of you. Stretch and slide, yeah! You're a giraffe! Now it's... Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Thompson Airways and my crew, a very warm welcome on board. I would ask that you please give me your full attention as I run through the safety procedure on board this aircraft. Welcome aboard this Air Middle-Earth flight. Before we set out on our journey, I would like to impart a story of safety. The regulations also specifically instruct cabin attendants to be animated and to make eye contact with each passenger during the briefing. They aren't flirting with you or making fun of a repetitive and boring task. Those self-conscious grins they have are actually part of the training. There are then a whole heap of required elements. Some of them are very obvious. For example, comply with the lighted signs, written placards and instructions of the crew members. And don't smoke on the ground when the no-smoking sign is lit, or on a no-smoking flight. One of the things that surprised me, though, is that some of the repetition you hear is actually because the regulations require it. For example, they don't just have to tell you not to smoke, they also have to remind you to obey the non-smoking signs 
and to follow crew member instructions about not smoking. That bit about smoke detectors being fitted in the lavatories, and that tampering with them is prohibited, is straight from the guidance too. The detail I first want to examine is the instruction about life jackets. It always puzzles me when they have the demonstration about how to put on a life jacket. If it's complicated enough that I need someone to show me how to do it, what are my chances of remembering the instructions hours later in the middle of an emergency? There have been post-accident studies and non-accident tests where a dismally small number of passengers correctly put on their life jacket within a reasonable amount of time, and many gave up during the tests altogether. The most common problem was correctly connecting and tightening the waist strap. So I'm sitting there watching the attendant put the jacket on and show me how to fasten and connect the waist strap, and just as I begin to worry if I'm going to get it right in a few hours' time, I calm myself with the thought that there's virtually no chance of my surviving an accident in which I would need the life jacket anyway. Passenger jets do not tend to make successful water landings. The typical result is either that everyone dies, or the aircraft comes to rest in very shallow water where life jackets aren't relevant. I can only find a very few exceptions. Here are three stories for you. On the 2nd of May 1970, a DC-9 operating as ALM Flight 980 was heading from JFK Airport in New York to the island of St. Martin in the Virgin Islands. The flight diverted partway due to poor visibility at St. Martin, but then resumed on the original course when it looked like the weather had improved. This used up a bit of extra fuel though, and unfortunately the official visibility and the actual visibility was somewhat at odds. Despite there being officially enough visibility to land, the crew tried to land three times and were unable to get the aircraft into a safe approach position on all three occasions. After trying three times, they decided that the best thing to do would be to land somewhere else, and they diverted to St. Thomas Island. Their totaliser, the instrument which showed how much fuel was left, had been behaving pretty erratically up to this point, but they did have gauges which showed how much fuel had been used. So using these gauges and their calculations about how much fuel they'd started with, they worked out that they should have had enough fuel for the diversion. In fact though, their gauges only showed how much fuel had been burned by the main engines. A small but significant amount had also been used by the auxiliary power unit, and this didn't show up on those gauges. So they had less fuel than they thought they had. Also, the poor weather meant that they used more fuel than they thought they needed, and so they realised part way that they simply didn't have enough fuel to make it. They decided to ditch the plane into the ocean. Ten minutes before the attempted water landing, the passengers and cabin crew were instructed to put on their life jackets. A lot of the passengers had difficulty either removing the jackets from the underseat pouches or putting the life jackets on. Studies afterwards showed that if a passenger can't get their life jacket out, Within about seven or eight seconds, they tend to give up. Due to the lack of a working public address system, and the flight crews being busy focusing on the upcoming landing, there was no last-minute warning. Several of the passengers and one crew member were standing at the time of the crash, and several more were sitting down but they didn't have their seatbelts fastened. Even more passengers were injured when their seatbelts failed at the time of impact. After the ditching, 
Passengers and crew were in the water for up to three hours before rescue was completed. A total of 23 people died in the crash, but 40 survived. The life rafts couldn't be deployed properly, so let's count that as 40 people who benefited from having life jackets. So that's episode number one. Since this is a holiday season, we ought to include some roasted goose. Specifically, Canada geese. Too small to appear on many radar sets, too big for a jet engine to handle. On 15 January 2009, an A320 operating as US Airways Flight 1549 departed from LaGuardia Airport, New York, straight into a flock of Canada geese. They were three minutes into the flight, and with both engines disabled, had around another three minutes before they hit the ground. Not long enough to reach even the airfield they'd just left. The flight crew, Captain Sullenberger and First Officer Skiles, achieved a near-perfect landing right in the middle of the Hudson River. Now, there's a persistent urban legend that other pilots have not been able to replicate this feat in simulators. If this legend was true, then Sullenberger and Skiles would probably have made a bad decision in trying to land on the Hudson. In fact, the opposite is true. When presented with the same in-flight emergency, with perfect advanced knowledge of exactly what was going to happen, only 8 out of 15 test pilots managed to land at LaGuardia or New Jersey, Jersey airports. In contrast, when they tried to land on the Hudson, 11 out of 12 of the test pilots made a textbook ditching, and the 12th used a different but still adequate technique. By choosing to ditch, the flight crew made the right decision, the only one that didn't require good luck and a miracle. This isn't to take anything away from the flight crew or cabin crew. There is a good reason this incident is known as the miracle on the Hudson. It's the only ever totally successful water landing of a large passenger jet. They did everything right. We've talked about checklists before on Disastercast 2. There are times when checklists are helpful, and times when flight crew need to recognise that the current circumstances just don't match the assumptions made when the checklist was put together. Here's the captain's checklist for evacuating an A320. Step 1. Make sure the parking brake is on. Step 2. Turn off the engines. Step 3. Initiate the evacuation command on the computer. In the middle of a river, due to a landing without engines, and with no electrical power, Sullenberger decided just to open the cabin door and yell for an evacuation. Having successfully landed and evacuated the plane, he then stayed on board a drifting, sinking airliner to make two further inspections that no one was left behind, before he and Skiles calmly stepped off the plane onto a New York City ferry. Because everyone survived this incident, we've got very good information about the safety briefings the evacuation, and the use of life jackets. Of the 150 passengers on board, only 25 reported that they'd actually watched all of the safety briefing, and then another 19 said that they'd watched some of it. 77 passengers retrieved seat cushions during the evacuation, and 10 got hold of life jackets. The crew passed out a lot of extra life jackets, and so a total of 21 out of the 150 passengers on board ended up with life jackets. At the time, safety briefings didn't have to talk about life jackets, 
unless the flight was actually going over a substantial body of water. And the passengers who used the seat cushions said that they did so because they remembered hearing in previous safety briefings that they could use the cushions for flotation. So even though not many had watched the safety briefing this time, the regular repeated safety briefings had caused some important information to sink in. Most of the passengers in this case were taken straight onto rafts, and all were picked up very quickly by boats. Only a few people ended up totally in the water, and mostly by their own choice because they were afraid the plane would explode. Let's be generous and say that the seat cushions and life jackets, combined, saved two or three lives. The third accident to talk about here is Ethiopia Airlines Flight 961. It was a hijacking, and it resulted in an unsuccessful water landing. Many of the deaths were blamed directly on the life jackets. Despite instructions to the contrary, passengers inflated their life jackets early and were trapped in the sinking plane as a result. This sort of scenario is the reason for the instruction. Do not inflate your life jacket until you leave the aircraft. But it also shows there's a good chance people won't actually obey that instruction. The bottom line here is that a scenario where life jackets are useful is unlikely, but it can happen. There have been at least a few times when passengers from large passenger jets have ended up in water where they've been grateful for the life jackets, and really only one case where they would have been definitively better without. So what about oxygen masks? Every time I hear the pull down firmly to start the oxygen flowing, I imagine myself in an emergency. What does it mean, pull down firmly? How hard am I supposed to pull? What if I pull too hard? What if I don't pull hard enough? How will I know if I don't pull hard enough because the bag may not inflate even though oxygen is flowing normally? On May 11, 1996, a DC-9 operating as Value Jet Flight 591 experienced a fire in the cargo hold. Normally this wouldn't be a problem because on that particular model of aircraft, the cargo hold was airtight. That meant any fire would burn out very quickly because of a lack of oxygen. Unfortunately, the particular items that caught fire were a set of emergency oxygen generators. The loading crew had assumed that because the items were marked as expired, i.e. out of date, they were therefore empty, which wasn't true at all. In fact, they both caused the fire and provided it with a continuous supply of oxygen until it consumed the aircraft tyres also being carried in that cargo hold. Eventually it reached the passenger cabin and the flight controls, and Flight 591 crashed, killing everyone on board. Okay, maybe not the best example for me to pick for oxygen masks saving lives. What about Aloha Air in 1988? Nope. The same blowout that caused the cabin to depressurize also damaged the oxygen system. Same thing with a 747 in 1989. Ah, here's one. On 7th of October 2000, on a 737 out of Stansted, the flight crew didn't follow the checklist and forgot to make sure that the engine bleed air was switched on. For some unknown reason, the circuit breaker disabled the normal cabin pressurization warning. So the cabin wasn't being pressurised, and the problem went unnoticed. 
At least it was unnoticed until all the oxygen masks deployed. This alerted the crew to the fact that the cabin wasn't pressurising, and they landed safely. As far as I can work out, that's the only time the passenger oxygen masks can be said to have really saved lives, by acting as a supplementary warning device to the pilots. There have been plenty of other flights where the oxygen masks have deployed, but these are all cases where the plane was already low enough, or got low enough quickly enough, that the oxygen masks didn't make any real difference. The masks are there, really for one particular case that hasn't happened yet. What if whatever causes the aircraft to depressurize also makes it hard for the pilots to get the plane quickly down to a safe altitude? That's certainly plausible, and when it happens, a lot of people are going to be very grateful for those masks. One last feature of the briefing to talk about, the brace position. There are two weird urban legends I've heard about the brace position. The first is that the position is designed specifically to make sure that your neck will break on impact, making sure you die quickly and that you aren't left disabled, which costs the insurance companies a lot more money. The second legend is that the position is designed to protect your teeth or keep your body parts together, to make identification of your body easier afterwards. The truth, of course, is neither of these things. The brace position is carefully designed, and it gets updated based on experience from accidents, or when they change the way the seats are designed. And there are two purposes to the position. Firstly, it puts your head wherever it's going to end up anyway, so that it doesn't get a chance to accelerate. This usually means putting it against the seat in front of you or down towards your lap. Secondly, it tries to stop your limbs flailing around where they're likely to get broken or to hit other people. That's the point of pressing your feet flat to the floor slightly behind your knees and wrapping your arms around your legs or folding them at your head. There seems to be a slight national difference in exactly where the arms should go. After the Kegworth accident in England, the brace position was updated to put your hands on top of each other behind your head. In the USA, the guidance still seems to be to rest your head on your hands. Of all the safety instructions, the brace position seems to be the one most worth reminding people of, and taking the time to make sure people get it right. Many aircraft accidents are actually survivable. Depending on how you count them, around 70% of accidents major, to have, major enough to have some fatalities still have multiple survivors. If you survive the initial impact, your biggest risk is not being able to get out of the aircraft before you get killed by fire or smoke. And having a head injury or a broken limb pretty much guarantees you're staying put until someone moves you. A small difference in how you brace and whether you brace in time can have a big impact on your chance of survival. Let's finish with one more interesting and attractive safety briefing. DisasterCast will be taking a short break and will resume fortnightly episodes on 28th of January. The offer I made last episode stands though. If 10 people review DisasterCast on iTunes or Stitcher in December or January, I'll put out an extra January episode on safety and security. If you want to read the accident reports mentioned in this episode, or just watch the fun safety videos, there are links on the website at disastercast.co.uk. 
Thank you to everyone who supported the show in 2013 with ratings, reviews, emails or feedback. Have a great 2014. Some safety tips that you gotta know And trust me, it's something that you wanna hear So honey, sip your lips and enjoy the show Before we move into the stratosphere, yeah So won't you hold up for your seatbelt Pull it down tight and keep your hook in that chair Until we turn off that light Turn your electrical devices off as fast as you can of you who have never operated a seatbelt before? Really? I mean, it works like this. Insert the metal end into the buckle until it clicks and pull on the loose end to tighten, making sure it fits slow and tight across your lap. There you go. To open, lift on the top of the buckle. And remember, seatbelts should be fastened whenever you're seated just in case of unexpected turbulence or weather conditions. Personal electronic devices should be turned off and properly stowed during taxi, takeoff, and landing. Should be placed inside carry-ons or under the seat, not in seatback pockets or loose on the cushion next to you. Nice try. Your in-flight team or the sign above will determine when electronics may or may not be used during flight. Yo, yo, yo! Now that you're bopping your head to the rap scene, now that your eyes are glued to the flat screen, if the cabin pressure's changing, you know that we won't be leaving you hanging. Pull your mask down first. Don't worry, oxygen flows. Tighten the straps after placing on your mouth and your nose. You're traveling with someone Like a child, for instance Put your mask on first Before you offer assistance Now, under your seat There's a life vest First class, it's below your center armrest Remove the pouch, tear it open Place it over your head Are we coming in clear? Did you hear what we said? Look all the white straps and tighten Right around your waist Once off the plane, pull the handles And your vest will inflate If your vest doesn't feel Honey, no big deal Blow into the red tube And you got every pill There's a bright locator light it's right on your shoulder. Thank you for your attention. This robot rap is over. Just in case we must evacuate, we've got a plan of attack. We've got a plan of attack. For with no exits on this airplane. Four exit doors, two in the front and two in the back. important for all you smokers out there. It's never allowed here, so don't you forget. Don't forget. Federal law prohibits tampering, destroying, disabling smoke detectors, so don't touch that cigarette. 
Don't you do it. All right, it's time for final cabin check. Make sure all carry-on bags are stowed away, tray tables and seats are in their upright and locked positions, and all electronic devices are completely shut off. For additional safety information, check out the safety cards located in the seat pocket in front of you. Please read and review before we take off. FAA regulations require that all guests comply with the lighted information signs, posted placards, and instruction of the in-flight team. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Now enjoy your flight, and as always, thank, thank you, you for flying Virgin America. America. So tonight... tonight.